It's like going to a breast cancer fundraiser and get your bullhorn out and scream, no, 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 all lives matter. There's all sorts of types of cancer. Why don't you care about those things? It's like. Hi everyone, welcome to Black Hand, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On today's episode, we're excited to share our conversation with award-winning journalist and CEO of Ernest Media Empire, Ernest Owens. But first, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So this episode, I thought we would go back to school and do some very ground level um, basic racism 101. Um, I'm noticing that we're getting asked a bunch of questions on social media and in our DMs on Instagram at Black and Podcast. Um, (laughs) And so I've been collecting a bunch of questions, sort of FAQs about race and racism, and I thought we would run through them, April, just 10 common ones. Um, but they're pretty basic in terms of, like, they, there's a there's no presumption of a sort of fundamental comprehension of race and race theory. And so for some of our listeners, this will actually be good because I think we do sort of gloss over some of these points a lot of the time because we presume that sort of competence. But um, I think it'd be good to run through these with some sort of just quick back and forth answers, and I think you and I should just alternate reading from this list. Sure. All right? Yeah. All right, so here's the first one. What is racism? So, like... April. <laughs> April. <laughs> um, I mean, so we've, we've defined this before. Um, we define racism as white people inherently benefiting from black people's oppression and inequality. Some people call it white privilege. Um, We call it white supremacy, but racism is the inherent benefit that all white people experience to the detriment of black and brown people. And of course there are degrees and serious, you know, degrees of seriousness in racism, right? Like right. certain things can be done in the name of racism that are very violent, that are very, that right. steal money, that do. But right. like, so, you know, a Klansman riding in a hood, screaming, kill all the niggers, that's racist. But, you know, our white mom being able to more easily cash a check than our black father is also racism. Very different. Different levels. But Both racism. Same idea. Both racism. Number two. What is white supremacy? Okay, so at bottom, white supremacy is the ingrained notion that whiteness is superior, better, or at very least, the norm or the default. Um which by definition makes it better than all things that are not the norm and that are abnormal and not the default. You mentioned this in the first answer. Um, White supremacy, of course, can take form. So the Klansmen riding around carrying a burning cross or, you know, throwing a brick through someone's window is white supremacy. That person surely believes that white people are superior. But also folks that call 
black and brown people exotic. Oh, your hair is so exotic. Let me touch it. That is, you're saying your hair is other, is different than my hair as a white person, which is the norm. Yours is this different thing. Even if it's a little special in my mind, it's different. It's other than my normal white hair, white people hair. That's white supremacy as well. It's a less harmful, less violent manifestation of it, but it's rooted in the same, on the same white supremacist, supremacist spectrum as the Klansmen. Number three, can black and brown people be racist toward white people? No, they cannot. Black and brown people can be prejudiced toward white people. We cannot like white people. We can say mean things about white people. But as a whole, in this country, black and brown people do not have the power to be racist against white people in that we don't have the power to, as a race, inherently change the lives of white people in a negative way or challenge their freedom and liberty or their rights as Americans or people in general. And individual white people, one might argue, aren't, don't have the power to take away someone's freedom, but they are bolstered by a system that supports white people and does have that power. Number four, what's wrong with people saying, I don't see color? Oh, yes. So this is, we get this commonly from well-meaning white people who like to believe that they are woke or um, above racism, talks about racism because these types of things don't apply to them because they don't see color. Um, what I would say to that is, that of course you do. Of course you see color. Um, it's that's a, You're just not being honest. Um, what I assume the person is saying is that they don't let people's race affect the way that they um, treat them. And that's also just not true. That's just proven to be untrue. Implicit bias and subconscious bias, we all have them. Um, I'd encourage everyone to go on to uh, one of the schools at Harvard put out a really great um, implicit bias test. If you just Google implicit bias test Harvard, it'll come up. Take the test. See um, from a sort of scientific perspective what your biases are. The notion that you see someone's race and treat them completely normal, normally without any respect to any of the implicit biases that you don't even know you have is um, impossible, pretty much. And so the notion that someone doesn't see color when it relates to race and racism just is not, can't be true. Number five, um, aren't there some white people who aren't racist? By our definition, no. All white people benefit from white supremacy. Therefore, all white people are racist. Are there white people who don't have any hatred in their heart or ill will toward black and brown people? Absolutely. There are, of course, many. But all white people in this country benefit from white supremacy, and so all white people are racist. That's not the same as saying all white people don't like black people in some way or form throughout their lives, but they all white people benefit from being white. Nothing more, just from being white. What is anti-racism? So anti-racism and anti-racist is a sort of uh, cool sort of buzzword that is 
coming into the mainstream over the last couple years, and it basically stands for the notion that it is not enough to just be neutral. It is not enough to, as you asked in question four, not see color. Uh, one must be anti-racist. One must be working against racism in order to dismantle it. So anti-racist, anti-racism means, is the notion that Combating racism takes active fighting and active dismantling and not just, quote-unquote, treating everyone the same, quote-unquote, treating us all like human, the one race, human, the human race. Oof, ooh, that just made me mad to say. Oh, yeah, no, so many chills. people say that. Um, Anti-racism requires more and requires proactivity um, when it comes to dismantling these systems. Number seven, you all often state that white people should maintain intimate relationships with black and brown people. Are you saying that we should seek out a black person to be friends with them and be friends with them intentionally? Isn't that fake? And what does that friendship look like? Good question. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Um, a couple there's a couple questions in there. Um, are we saying to seek out black people and be friends with them intentionally? Um, Yes and no. Yes? Yeah. Like, yes, question mark? Um, I'm saying do things in your life that would make a friendship with you to a black person be inviting. That also implies being around black people. Mm. You as a white person, we've said this before, if you wanted to, could choose to never be around black people. And I think a lot of people do that probably unintentionally, but that's how their lives are. All white schools, all white neighborhood, all white church, all white, all white communities. And that's just the way that your life is. So when we encourage people to have relationships with black people, that has to change. The point isn't to, you know, walk down the street, find a black person, say, hey, you know what? That's going to be my new friend. Find a token black friend. Right. What you want to do is create within yourself an awareness of race and racism and black people that would make your friendship attractive to a black person. That doesn't mean not being you, but that means learning some new things, going to two different places, um, reading different things, watching different things, being someone that a black person would want to be friends with. And that though there are no specific traits that, you know, black people love. That's weird. But it's being a friend that a black person would be comfortable around. And what does that friendship look like? It's two people relating to each other with the intention on the white person's side of not playing a dominant role in the relationship of not always assuming what you think is best or what you do is the norm. Um, actively engaging with and being open to that other person's culture and interests and likes and ideas and engaging with them in a real and sincere way. Number eight, why is Black Lives Matter anti-police? Ooh, this is, we get this one all the time. Uh, it's not. So that's the answer. Cool. Um, Black Lives Matter was founded uh, in response to 
a slew of police killings of unarmed black men and boys. Um, So Black Lives Matter is about police accountability. It's about police reform. It is about holding police responsible and accountable when they kill unarmed black people, which they do at higher rates than any other group of people. Um, Black men, higher than any other rate of race and gender combinations. Um, And it's about holding those groups um, to their original creed, which is to serve and protect civilians in their neighborhoods. Um, So Black Lives Matter is not anti-police. It might come off that way because police are getting protested by by Black Lives Matter because police keep killing black unarmed folks. Um, So until the system gets completely reformed, you will have organizations like Black Lives Matter that are there to hold them accountable and push to keep them in check. This relates to question number nine. Um, Why doesn't Black Lives Matter care about black-on-black crime? Chicago killings are at an all-time high, after all. April? (laughs) So it's like... I just don't understand this question. Like, (laughs) it blows my mind. First of all, black-on-black crime, that idea is not a thing. Right. That doesn't exist. Their statistics show that just like black people, white people are more likely to commit a crime against another white person. I... I'm just like, I don't understand why that is the the question that always comes up when you're talking about making black people's lives better and ending racism. What about black on black crime? What, what about it? Yeah, we want that to be I over too. Like, yeah, we want all I'd crime to be over. To yeah. I would love all crimes against black and white people to end, no matter who's committing them. So let me, I'm going to give some background. So it See, sounds, I'm mad. Right, oh I know. God. So what I hear this from people, it's basically saying black lives matter is a joke because if they really cared about black lives, they would care about the black people that are killing other black people in Chicago. That's the real, that's the argument. And it's like, all right, so the answer is that's, there are tons of groups that care about that. There are tons of work that is already being done and has been done in Chicago, for example. Well, we, everyone brings up Chicago because it's just an easy thing to talk about because Trump talks about it all the time. Um, but those groups are different than Black Lives Matter. They have different aims. Black Lives Matter is about protecting black lives from police, from the government. And so it's but- just different things. It's like going to a... I gave this example when I was talking to someone recently. It's like going to... If there was a spike in breast cancer occurrences and you go to a breast cancer fundraiser and get your bullhorn out and scream, no, 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 no. Like there are all other, all, you know, all lives matter. There's all sorts of types of cancer. Why don't you care about those things? It's like. That would be ridiculous. We do care about those things as well. But this is a breast cancer fundraiser because there's some there's a spike in breast cancer. So Black Lives Matter is, yeah, we care about all those other things, but there's a spike and has been always in police killing unarmed black men. It's the, the rates are so much higher. So we're just going to, we as BLM are going to just focus on that. We'll support all the other people that are supporting black people in other ways, but it's not calling us out to say, well, why don't you care about butter? Like, well, and also the notion of black and Black on black crime makes it sound like all black people are 
committing crimes against other black people. <laughs> right, right. All black people are affected negatively by racism. Right. That's a fact. Right. A very, 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 very small percentage of black people are committing crimes against other black people. Right. So it you just sound stupid. Right. And I don't know how to say that nicely. It also has nothing. Yeah. Let me stop there. Yeah. Let me just stop there. Black on black crime isn't a thing. Right. So that's why Black Lives Matter isn't concerned with it. Right. End of question. End of rant. Um, me next. Okay. Number 10. Why does it seem like... I need to take a breath. Whew, okay. Number 10. Why does it seem like you guys make everything about race? Mm. Well, why do we, John? Well, Because so we do. First, that's the theme of this podcast. So <laughs> if you didn't know that, I suggest unsubscribing now if that's Welcome. not what you're in for. Um, but also, as we, I hope, are illustrating, and this is good that this is the last question because it's sort of all-encompassing, as I hope we're illustrating all of these issues, we're talking about criminal justice, we're talking about religion, we're talking about, you know, hair texture, we're talking about all sorts of great, like small and large topics are all, I hope we're illustrating to you, affected by race and racism. Race is far reaching and it touches on all of the things. So any cause you might have, you know, climate change, uh, clean water, you know, uh, anything, literally, literally anything, anything, is black and brown people and native people bear the brunt of that and get the shittiest end of that stick. So climate change will affect black and brown, and is affecting black and brown people the most, whether it is increased, um, you know, mosquitoes spreading diseases, spreading malaria in Africa, or whether it's people in low-lying parts of the country that are whose homes are being flooded, or whether it's, you know, I said clean water. It's towns like Flint and and Jackson, Mississippi, who have disproportionately black and brown communities that are that are drinking fucking lead water. You know, yeah. if we talked about LGBTQ issues exclusively, we would be remiss to not point out that black and brown LGBTQ folks experience the harms related to those identities at higher levels than white people that fit in those groups. So it's, it is far-reaching and expansive, and it touches on all the other things because it is a part of the fabric that uh, makes up our country. It's part of our society by design. It is there to, be, um, to create a social hierarchy. Um, to ignore that and speak about the other issues other, that are important in their own rights, but to act like they don't they're not affected by white supremacy and racism would be uh, would be malpractice on our part. So that's why we make everything about race. Also, uh, feel free to unsubscribe if that's not what you're in for. <laughs> that's not what you're looking for <laughs> in our podcast. Whew. That is that's ten questions. Yeah, wow. That's a lot. There's yeah. so there are dozens, dozens more. Maybe um, if you guys let us know that you enjoyed this, uh, we'll do another session of, of FAQ. But this sort of racism one hundred and one was a it's a nice little primer. I thought. Yeah, agreed. So with us, we have writer at large at Philadelphia Magazine and CEO of Ernest Media Empire, Ernest Owens. Thank you for joining us, Ernest. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You're someone who I've been in touch with for a while, and I've wanted to have you on the pod for a while. And I'm so happy we've gotten 
around to doing it. You have a, such an interesting story um, and such an interesting career. Um, I know our viewers are going to benefit from it. So um, I'd like to just dive right in if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so could you tell our listeners, uh, I guess, about your sort of professional background and interests um, and your sort of reporting focus area um, and sort of how you made your way to becoming, um, I believe, the the first uh, black gay senior uh, writer at large at Philadelphia Magazine. Yes. Yeah. So I'm um, 28. Um, I was born in Chicago, um, grew up in Houston, Texas most of my life, um, went to um, high school in a, in a school that had nearly 5,000 kids. I went to Ailey Elsick High School. Um, Lizzo wow. went there. Beyonce went there. Wow. Uh, wow. Public school. Um, they, you know, they went on with their lives and stuff. They not even graduate. Um, I graduated uh, class president valedictorian, so I was like an overachiever. Um, <laughs> got to some cool schools. Went to the University of Pennsylvania. Um Really thought that, you know, initially my interest was going to, you know, be a politician. I was interested in politics. A lot of that came from, you know, that was the era when Obama had first got elected. So I was in, I graduated from high school in 2010. So my junior year when he got, you know, got inaugurated, I ran for class president and won. And so it was around that same time where, you know, there was a lot of, this there was this imagination of like you know black men and women could do anything you know the mm. you know we had no excuse i remember you know growing up at that time and people were saying you know you can't blame the man now you know mm. um, <laughs> no we really still can but that was just the, I, um that that was in the room and then once i came um attended penn you know i got hit with a lot of the classism um and racism even in a space that was supposed to be a liberal arts type of experience. And it was in that time where I was really interested in storytelling and sharing my experiences and really, you know, fell in love with just journalism and just media in general and switched my major, became a communication major and was writing op-eds um, frequently and being a columnist actually for the school paper, which was a daily Pennsylvanian. And then, you know, just really fell in love with it and kind of and kind of went with it. And, and, and it was interesting because I went to a school where, you know, people were, you know, going to be lawyers. You were, you were going to be a lawyer. You then we have the, the Warden School of Business, which our current right. president, um, you know, is, is, a, is a graduate of. Um, but there was this emphasis on being a business person, entrepreneur and and media and journalism was, you know, not looked at with the same esteem, especially for black people. Um, there was just this emphasis on consulting and, and all this. But I really loved um, how people responded to how I, you know, the things I wrote and how people felt about, um, you know, the impact that this had. You know, I, I covered all types of crazy things on my campus and essentially, you know, I went out into the world and realized very early that, you know, to be black and to be young and to really do journalism that it wasn't going to have the same um, red carpet openings and opportunities initially for uh, people like myself as it did my white counterparts, where mm. they automatically went straight to the New York Times and major media companies. And for me, um, the type of writing that I do, I really cover um, social issues and um, 
and how they intersect in pop culture, um, politics and whatnot. And there wasn't at that time, I think I came at a really interesting era where writing about race and covering race was starting to finally get um, this distraction as far as like a part, you know, I came into that digital think piece era before they called it mm-hmm. think piece. It was just, you know, there was this interesting moment. So I kind of, you know, struck the iron while I was hot and being a part of this wave of, of, of a full embrace of diversity writing. I mean, we still are not where we need mm-hmm. to be, but it's a lot better now than how it was. I remember when I was in college, and trying to, you know, articulate this this type of writing and this interest in this subject matter. It just wasn't there at the time. I mean, even when I look at some of the, the stuff that people were applauding back then as far as what was a breakthrough in race reporting and writing, today it's that's that's mince me compared to the things that we can now talk about and how we can talk about them in publications actually investing into that kind of writing, like making channels and sections like that. This is all new, you know? Um, and so, you know, coming in, starting off, it was hard and I, you know, hard to really kind of, you know, stay true to what I wanted to write about because at that time until to this day, black men, serious about journalism, it was always an emphasis on broadcast or sports. Mm-hmm. Being able to be a black man and, and and write about, you know, local elections and that there's still a there's still a bias. There's still there's still a lack of us there in that space. And even black women have really in media have navigated different avenues from fashion to food. You know, they were really much um, uh, cutting edge and breaking into different industries, black men were kind of pigeonholed um, in what we could write about and talk about. And even if you're black and queer, the the automatic idea of me wanting to write something that wasn't about gossip or red carpet mm-hmm. or entertainment, which I, there are some really great, incredible black um, queer uh, entertainment writers like Travell Anderson who's a good friend of mine, but there was this focus on that being the space for us. So when I walked into a room and said, Hey, I really want to talk about, um, you know, this, 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 this shooting that happened, this unarmed black man being shot, there was automatically a sense of, well, really, really, I'm surprised. Or when I would pitch stories as a freelancer back then, there was this, this, this hesitance, of, of whether or not I could handle that or questions of, well, you know, you're black, you know, you're covering this race. What about your, is your bias going to come out in that just because I was black? Oh, wow. I could mm-hmm. White people cover white crime things every day and no one asks them about their bias. That is often right. implicit. And it's right. Right. But right. This, these were the things I faced very young coming into the industry. And, you know, with some really great mentors and some really good people who opened the door for me, I was able to carve out a niche and, and get some really good opportunities very fast. I was a columnist for a free paper called Metro, uh, which is which was in Philadelphia, uh, Boston, and New York. And I got an opportunity to hit a wide audience of people. I did some writing on at the Huffington Post online digitally. And, and I just started to really zoom in on what I wanted. And it was hard because there was temptation, the temptation of, you know, some major entertainment company saying, hey, we'll love you to work our red carpet and do this. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. But I was very stubborn and 
and to a default that I did not want that to be the work I wanted to do, even though it was very, you know, tempting because, you you know, I, I did do a couple of red carpet events, um, for the BT awards, for the hip hop awards. But I just felt like that wasn't who I was. I was like, look, I got an Ivy League degree. I learned a lot about critical race theory. I learned a lot about the industry. I learned a lot about critical race theory and just some of the stereotypes. And I just didn't want to perpetuate that. I didn't want to be a part of that. And it was hard, especially when you see people and, you know, I'm just, you know, look, you're fine. I'm frank where you got like the Mark Lamar Hills of the world where they got react they're hosting reality tv show reunions that perpetuate these stereotypes of black women but at the same time they're academics and scholars and this is almost like i don't want to do that dance mm, you know i don't right. i have to, to to like we can make conversations about race and these things compelling and sexy without compromising our you know our overall contribution um to the community um and the culture and so that was something that i um, grapple with early on my career and really um, to this day understand my role um, as a writer. And, and and I began to, you know, build a following on social media. I've had some interesting um, uh, social media moments, um, notably with Timberlake back mm. in 2017. Yes. And then, you know, some other, you know, conversations that have allowed me to get exposure on CNN, MSNBC, um, been able to write for the Grio, BT, and all these other great places. But one of the things that was very important to me in my writing, and which gets me to Philadelphia Magazine, was that no matter where I was, I always felt like, and this is a critique I have for a lot of media and just community people, if you don't have a, a firm grasp of what's happening in your own backyard, how can you really fix the nation, the national issues? How can you fix the, the global issues? And so as much as I was getting national prominence in the media, I had a strong desire to know what was going on in my own city that I was living in. And so I live in Philadelphia, and it was important to me to know how these issues were impacting everyday black and brown people in my own city. And so as much as I cover national issues and these issues, I focused on how these things were impacting people living right next door to me. Can you uh, talk about that a little more, expand on that, um, the importance of local Philadelphia news? Um, yeah, and also, you know, the state of uh, diversity in newsrooms, you know, regarding race and gender and identity and sexuality in Philadelphia specifically? Yeah, so Philadelphia is an interesting city. Um, you know, it's it's funny because I look at myself. I was born in the third largest city. I grew up in the fourth largest city and then pretty much, you know, kind of made my career and what was at the time the fifth largest city, which is Philadelphia. It's now six. I think Phoenix now beats us in the top five. But what I learned really most is that there is a lot of um, contradiction and hypocrisy and Philadelphia's um, conversations around media and just diversity. So we are a majority um, they say we're a majority minority city. I don't like mm. to use the word majority as much, but I like to say that we have more. Because why do we have to? Even when we're the majority, we're still the minority. I just don't right. get it. It <laughs> doesn't make sense. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I, I like to say we're a majority of color city, which is hard for people to hear. Uh, right. We're predominantly of color, 
And they don't want to say, we say predominantly white. Why can't we say predominantly of color? Why can't we say predominantly black and brown? Right. You know, why are we saying majority minority? What about say predominantly black and brown city? Why is that so threatening to people um, to say that? But that's what I, that's where we are. We, we have um, a plurality of black people in this city. There's more black people specifically than any other race in the city. We're not over 50% anymore, but we have the majority of racial identity um, is solely black at around 40, 42, 43%, roughly around that. And then everyone else follows in the thirties and twenties and less. But despite that um, racial um, diversity, as far as population, the opportunities, the access and representation just, just sucks. Um, and that is because I do arguably say we have a huge wealth income gap. We are the poorest major city in the country. Um, our, our segregation, we're very segregated racially. We are, our wealth income, the half and a half knots are extreme. You know, you can go to Rittenhouse and, and see billionaires and mm-hmm. then turn around and go to North Philly, parts of North Philly. And it's just completely two different cities. And and yet we're one of the cities where you can go part any major touch point within 20 minutes. And yet you can literally cross over entire areas like streets and see a completely different world that feels like you're like stuck in the 80s. Like some of these mm-hmm. buildings have been around from the 80s and 70s in neighborhood blocks that just have had no development, nothing like it just it's 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 just a very glaring um, disparity visually and socially in the city. And so this impacts news media coverage because um, unfortunately we just, for, for all of this diversity, we have representation, in the city's population, we don't really see it translate and transcend in job opportunities and representation. So crazy enough, our city council is diverse as hell. We have mostly uh, black and brown people in city council, um, and state reps and all these positions in Philly politics is very diverse. We got a black police commissioner. We have a black sheriff. We have, we used to have a black DA. We know what happened to him. But we <laughs> had a black mayor a while back. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good opportunities here as far as representation in politics. We do have a very diverse political system, but that does not translate into opportunity access. Um, and largely that is due to the corruption, uh, the buyouts, and the internalized anti blackness that um, typically keeps a lot of these people in power for, for years on years and on end. So, um, when it comes to journalism, that's a reflection of that. Journalism in Philadelphia lacks um, intersectionality. Um, a lot of it is just black and white, and there's no real context behind, well, you know, wh- wh- why is there a spike in gun violence in Philly? Rather than just simply saying, that this is a deadly year for Philly mm-hmm. shootings. Why are we not making the? Why are we not digging deeper? And I find a lot of the the stories and the experiences that are happening in the city lacks um, a level of intersectionality and context that connects the dots between poverty, unemployment, and all these things. We just say ten people were shot this weekend. Yeah, right. Uh, deadliest year. And yet we just don't ever say, well, also this block where these shootings are happening also has the highest level of poverty. The context missing in the news that really furthers, in my opinion, pushes a, a bigger divide, um, 
you know, and enhances and 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 embodes stereotypes about black and brown people, and also creates an unfortunate mass hysteria that if people, you know, unfortunately people are not being educated and, and given the resources and the context. So a lot of the work that I've done in Philadelphia media, as far as the writing that I do, provides that nuance and clarity uh, that isn't given. So when I see a story about, you know, racial discrimination in the neighborhood and people, you know, being up in arms saying, wow, I'm shocked that there's racial discrimination, you know, because they have decided that somehow all identity speak into the existence of another. There's people like me that have to say, well, there's racial discrimination here because this is about race than it is about sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And letting people understand that while media loves to, and this is just, this is what they do. They love to find trends where sometimes it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. They love to make correlations when this just might be a unique one-time thing. They love to create the continuity to create a series. There's an obsession in media um, to build a series around something, to, 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 to find a pattern, even if there isn't any necessary, necessary pattern. For example, there is a young man, uh, his name is uh, Michael White young black boy who was found not guilty on um, criminal charges involving a killing uh, a killing of a man, a white rich developer who died um, in an altercation between um, this young man yeah. and him about two years ago. There was a story that ran last week where there was someone who stabbed someone in Rittenhouse um, over some incident. The details weren't there. And they tried to then say, well, this is the last time there was a stabbing death um, there was a stabbing death actually a year ago where a young man named Michael, I'm like, but the, the, the gag is, is that um, information from the case of arrived that this wasn't actually a stabbing in the sense mm-hmm. of the young man did not actually stab this guy. This guy right. went to his knife. There wasn't a multiple stabbing. It wasn't a, a, that type of altercation. But this is a man who's been found not guilty of this crime. And yet right. still people trying to make this false correlation. Yeah. And continue to throw his name in stories. And so, again, trying to, a thirstiness to try to find uh, a pattern where it doesn't necessarily exist. That's something that I've just covered in my career, um, you know, these types of false narratives and bad patterns that have taken place. Yes. What I was going to say is that, you know, that is one of the things I like so much about reading your writing is that your report, the sort of factual whatever happened, but also that nuance and background that, that is actually, you know, sort of undergirds whatever the situation is or provides some sort of context. And it's that's why a lot of your stuff, I've, I went back to read a lot of your stuff in preparation for this um, for this interview. And a lot of it is still just so relevant because the, thing, the context that you're listing has, along with the immediate, you know, story that happened, um, isn't actually changed and isn't actually getting better. And so I would encourage all of our read, all of our listeners to go back and, and read everything you've ever written. It is so you're, you're, it's really great. So, um, all that being said, um, and you sort of touched on a little bit here. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest sort of Philadelphia local stories, um, that folks may be overlooking because they're paying too much attention elsewhere or they don't, um, yeah, they're too sort of obsessed with national media. Maybe, um, you and I have discussed some of these before, but I wonder if you can, um, 
sort of list list a few of your sort of most prominent ones for our, our listeners? Yeah, I think one is poverty. Um, we, we're, we're not we're not getting to the root of the poverty problem in Philadelphia. Um, and the, and the people that are writing about it just don't tell it with level of of maturity, um, dignity towards those who are living in displacement that we, we have not touched the surface level of it. Like, I mean, we're touching the surface level. We just have not dig deep, right? The conversation is still around unemployment, but there isn't a conversation about the displacement that is happening with the developers and showing how, if you want to talk about patterns and trends, that developers pricing out people has furthered poverty in this city beyond just simply a person got laid off from a job or people can't find work. There's finally conversations around the fact that, you know, there was talking about this job increase and boom in the city. Like there's like, oh, jobs are increasing in Philly. And then there's a report that comes out that says, well, actually, um, the job increase issue is that there, there, there are jobs, but these are very low paying jobs. Mm-hmm. And then no one's talking about the interesting cost of living um, that is happening in Philadelphia. The cost of living is interesting um, and going up. There's also not enough conversation about the soda tax, where there's been conversation about the political back and forth over the soda tax, but how the soda tax itself is impacting the livelihood of um, you know working class, poor black people. Uh, specifically living in parts of North Philadelphia, and that that's that's creating problems. Um, and then also too, there's there's a lack of conversation um, outside of poverty alone, but there's a lack of conversation about this about schools. Everyone's mm-hmm. still talking about the school issues, but the education coverage has gotten very, has plateaued. There was a wave. There was a lot of great reporters who was really hitting some of the major issues happening. But I feel like education conversation, even though it's on everyone's mind, it's plateauing, right? right? So you keep getting the, oh, there's a best those. And now finally people want to admit that, you know, if it, if it, you know, they think they're doing something bold by saying things that black people have been saying years about, about education issues that, oh, if there's a, you know, only when there is a a school that has white kids that people care to pull the kids out of the schools with asbestos or care. It's like, we got to pass that point. We, We get that. Like, let's get to holding people accountable. And I think what's missing in a lot of the reporting that I read that I think people are just scared to do, which I don't understand why they're journalists that they're scared to do this. We need to point fingers. And journalism, we're, when we're dealing with, with community affairs and, and issues impacting people, we should point the finger. We should really mm-hmm. hold people accountable. It is someone's fault. Whose fault is it? Point the finger, call the name. And that's mm-hmm. something that I don't back away from in my reporting because I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to tell the truth. And I'm also not here to coddle people. There's been a culture lately, especially for black reporters. And I, and, and this is something that it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dance in, in Philly where there is, there is no wall of separation in Philadelphia politics and even journalism between black public officials and black journalists. Mm. There, there have been a lot of this buddy-buddy relationships that have taken place. And to be quite mindful, there is, there is, there is, you know, I do believe that there can be a cordial relationship. I do have 
cordial relationships with elected some elected officials just based on covering them for a feature story or whatnot, but not to the extent where none of them think I'm going to let them off the hook, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. A lot of reporters um, that I've seen in our communities that are in one moment writing stories about these politicians and then going to parties and drinking with them and taking selfies. Mm. And one thing to have a relationship with people before I was a city council fellow um, before I was a journalist and there's people I've known before I was in industry and I have some, some relationships with them because by default this, this town is very small and you're going to know some people and there's going to be some relationship outside of that. But for my overall aesthetic and my appeal, I am okay with politicians being afraid of me. I'm okay with <laughs> them not, you know, being biting their nails, not knowing what I'm going to write about. You know, it's okay for them to 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 think take me seriously. And I feel like black journalists sometimes are put in this position where they feel like they play into that that trap that black public officials do, where it's like. Oh, you wrote a piece about me criticizing me. You know, you're 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 bringing a black man down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Got it, got it. And it's like, no, we got to have some accountability in our community. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to say, if I, the black journalist, cannot hold my black elected officials accountable in the press, who can? And who would you rather? Right. Yeah. You know. And that's something that I've had to fight for is that respect. Because I've dealt with the ageism, the nepotism. I've dealt with a lot of, you know, some homophobia at times. I've dealt with the regional bias of the, you're not from here. Well, I've been living in Philly for mm-hmm. years now, so I live in Philly. Mm-hmm. I got... Right. I got, I got <laughs> only taxes I've paid as an adult has been given to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. No other state in this country has gotten taxes from Ernest Owens. Except <laughs> I'm a resident. I got a state ID. I've been here for 10 years. My money and my resources has gone to help and support this, this city. So I'm, I'm not, I don't let them talk to me like that. Yeah. Um, also, I'm invested in the community. You know, I don't live in Rittenhouse or Center, Center City. I live in Cedar Park. I live in West Philly. I live in the community. So I'm very much aware of what goes on, not only as a journalist, but as a taxpayer. Because right. I see some of these people doing things in my community, and I have to take a step back and say, well, I'm not okay with this as a, as a taxpayer. So I often look at it as a columnist with the idea of when I speak the things I'm speaking, I'm talking also from legitimate concern as a citizen as well. Like, I'm not just writing this as a, oh, I have this. None of these things impact me. These things impact me, too. And so when I have the privilege and opportunity to share my frustrations and grievances with those things, I don't take that for granted. And there just has to be a better way to communicate the people that wall. Um, and some people just, you know, I think sometimes race, um, people use race as a way to blurry those lines um, on purpose. Mm. Um, and, and I just don't fall for it. I go into this job. I have held, you know, no matter who you talk to, they'll try to say, oh, Ernest just has a thing for criticizing black politicians. But you 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 ask the mayor, Mayor Kenny, who's a white man in this city, if he feels like I, I don't I don't hold him accountable. He would probably say 
I'm hard on him. Depending on who you talk to, they'll say right. Ernest is hard on white people more than he is on black people. Then the black was like, he's too hard on And I think that that shows you that I'm doing my best. Exactly. Yeah. Don't think I'm their friend. Then that means I am doing the work. That's yeah. how I'm on the right side. Where there's no group of people feeling like I'm their quote unquote homie when it comes to holding them accountable in my reporting and in my storytelling. So, mm. you know, and in the city like Philadelphia, there has to be some level of accountability for black politicians. You have a city where the majority of the people in this city look like you. You hold political power in many ways in this city. There's no way that we can have poverty and employment with black politicians in office without somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing. Mm. Right. And so if I can turn a blind eye, act like it don't exist, and then when these corruption charges happen, everyone then becomes a, you know, that's when everybody starts doing the, well, what, what? <laughs> I have learned that I have to be very focused on, if I see smoke, I got to let people know there's smoke before the fight. We just can't mm-hmm. wait for things to just happen. Because, you know, with political corruption, things just don't happen. It's a buildup. Right. And sometimes, sometimes it, you know, you're on the receiving end where you start letting people know, hey, this ain't looking right. And people start saying, hmm. So I've had to be in that position, you know, several mm-hmm. times with people that have been in office for longer than I've existed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had to, to make tough decisions to say, hey, this man is being this person has been accused of sexual harassment multiple times. We got to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And, and so- sometimes people push him back. So. It's part of the job. I found out. I'm okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if we could sort of switch gears and talk about, yes, spreading the word, but specifically on social media. Um, You have a very active, um, I I would say, awesome Twitter presence. Um, How do you you view the role of Twitter and other social media outlets as they relate to media? I mean, I feel like... It's another type of journalism. Um, it's a different way to spread the news. You have a di- you reach a different audience, yes. um, and it's a different way of reporting. I mean, sometimes it can be fun and silly, and other times it can be very informative and real. Um, so, can you talk about your your Twitter presence specifically and and how you use it, but also uh, social media in general as it relates to media? No. Agreed. Yes, absolutely. I would say that I wouldn't have, my career wouldn't have um, been as successful as early if it was not for Twitter. Mm. Um, I think that I believe that Twitter is a tool. Uh, I see Twitter as a tool, an important tool to help give ideas, news, and information to a larger swath of people in ways that you can't on any other social media platform. And when I say that, I think of the fact that on Twitter, a guy like me that was 23 was able to get in contact with one of the biggest major pop stars on the planet and help keep a conversation about cultural appropriation going. Um, with a large scale of people in a way that couldn't have happened on Facebook. Or can, you, on can you tell that story, Ernest? Tell what, yeah, who, I mean, who, you, who you're talking about and what happened? Yeah, so Justin Timberlake, in a nutshell. I was watching BT Awards 2016. This was like late June. And Jesse Williams, this was the night Jesse Williams had that speech that everyone remembers to this day. Mm-hmm. And 
Justin Timberlake got on Twitter and said, you know, that he was inspired and and moved or whatnot and just really just jumped on this this train. And, you know, something in me, you know, I I I well, I'll get to that in a minute, but Something in me just said, well, you know, I knew the history about Janet Jackson um, and, 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 and him because that happened in Houston, Texas. And I was um, a, a young You're talking about at the Super Bowl when she was on stage when, and when she was on stage, they took off the n- nipple gate, as they call yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. And that happened in Houston. And I was in Houston as a young boy watching the Super Bowl. Don't watch the bowl anymore. Let's be clear. <laughs> right. Right. But, you know, I remember watching as a young boy, and I think Beyonce had sung the national anthem. She actually sung the national anthem. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I watched it, and, and I remember this was like, this was, you know, Houston's, you know, proudest day. And um, when that happened, I remember just growing up and just seeing the culture was so different back then. I think it was 2003 or whatever, I think it was. Mm-hmm. 2004. And, it was a conversation like it was four and people were were just blaming Janet. And I was just like, but he mm-hmm. took why are we mad at Janet? And mm-hmm. I never I didn't understand it then, I don't understand it now. Back then I remember confused by just remember I remember how many people just put the fault on her because it was the argument was it was her nipple though. Right, but I'm right, like, right. but he participated and people didn't have the words or the, uh, the well, let me clarify, black women did, but everybody else did not right. <laughs> was on the same wavelength. And I just remember him going to the Grammys and the next week, getting up there, getting that Grammy for Crime Your River and just kind of just, you know, you know, kind of like there was a bunch of people outside protesting for Janet and he just didn't have her back. And I just remember like looking now in retrospect, look at the clips from Extra where he kind of really just put the blame on her, threw her under the bus. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody, they were that defended him and backed him, including some black men in industry. Right. And, and you know, looking at this man, I'm looking at Jesse Williams' speech, which talks about a lot of things, right? You know, um, cultural appropriation, respectability politics, you know, uh, violence, right? White right. supremacy, all of these things, white privilege, all of these things. And I'm looking at Justin, like, how are you inspired? So I had to ask the question. I said, well, does that mean you're going to apologize to Janet and, ap- and apologize for cultural appropriating music? Like, like what you apologizing for? Right. Because if you, because to me, I felt like you he was clout chasing. He was using that moment mm-hmm. to to just be a part of the conversation. It's like this ain't really a conversation for you. It can be if you're right. gonna or and so I want to use that opportunity to do that. And instead of for him responding, he could have not responded. Let me be clear, I was not verified. I only had about maybe 1,000 something followers, 2,000 followers, you know what I'm saying? I, I really didn't have any, he didn't have to respond to me, to be quiet. I was mm-hmm. not, according to the way, that, the way that Twitter looks at it, important. Right. <laughs> you, you were what I am now on Twitter, which is not important at all. <laughs> Don't feed the birds, which is, let me tell you, that situation has taught me not to feed the birds. I'm like, let me not make someone famous. Let me not feed into someone's nonsense or someone's talking some nonsense. You know, I'm, I, I, this is a textbook example of how the, the world works because he really didn't. But I think for all of those reasons I told you is why he felt like he could pick on me. And so he mm-hmm. decided to get a, Oh, you, you poor sweet. soul. the long, the more you see that we have a more alike, the more whatever. So he basically Oof. did the all matter type of thing. Right. And at that moment, you know, you know, Twitter broke loose. 
And mm-hmm. I remember it was late night. I was in my apartment, my studio apartment. I don't live there anymore. I was it was four fifty a month. I was a freelance writer. <laughs> and I my house and I and at the time my then boyfriend, who's now my fiance, but at the time he was on the other side and I kept saying my phone kept vibrating. And he looking like, what the hell's going on? I said, well, I just tweeted Justin Timberlake. I don't know what's going on. People, I didn't know because, you know, I didn't have a smartphone like that. I had a smartphone, but I didn't, you know, it was, the internet was very different. Now you can, right. you know, but right. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> but the phone kept vibrating. And then people was like, yo, you in complex. What? What's that? <laughs> um, and it just was like a bunch of stuff. So I just went to bed. I just I remember this so vividly. Was I had a little cheap little phone. I mean, the phone just kept vibrating. Like nonstop, and I could have put it on silent. And then I walk up in the morning, my editor at Philly Magazine was like, yo, about last night. <laughs> and I had all these news media people asking, can I use my tweet? Can I interview him? I was like, what the hell is going on? And it was just that, in a nutshell, I found out that he responded. It was all this mayhem. So I was tweeting that night, but I didn't realize what was happening outside of it. Because I really, you know, I mean, I used Twitter back then, but I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know all the bells and whistles. I didn't understand what was happening. Um, but I knew it was something something had popped off. And um, from there, I got a bunch of interviews. And people didn't realize then. They're like, wait a minute, you're a journalist, actually. I'm like, yeah. So mm-hmm. I knew the process. People called me. I answered the call. So I was right. talking to somebody from... BT to you know to black, the you know complex according all this stuff happened from that and that really gave me opportunity to network and get opportunities to actually not only be covered by these publications but actually write for them because I had other things to say um, and I turned that not into just a moment but a movement for my career um, uh, and that was the beauty of Twitter for me was just like Twitter can create moments, but they can also create movements and they can also create opportunities for people. And I think that for black people specifically, this has been an opportunity, you know, when done right and when done ethically can help give people platforms to, to really share important ideas. There are people who are using it for, 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 for the worst reasons, um, clearly in our community, but there are people who have used it for good things and have given opportunity. And I'm still on the side of believing that this is a democratic platform that has allowed even the, the guy living in the $450 studio apartment in West <laughs> Philly, a chance to talk about, be a part of a global conversation about issues that that you know were only dictated by people who had PhDs and and VIP access, right? Mm-hmm. There there's a space and place for for all of us on social media for good and for bad that doesn't happen on other social media platforms the same way. And so mm-hmm. I. Uh, you know, Jack definitely needs to do some things, though. I'll say that he needs to get these <laughs> the, the CEO of Twitter. You mean white supremacists in order, but yes, <laughs> purposes. I still love the platform, and and now with you know over fifteen thousand followers now, years later, and you know with a verified account and some incredible people following me, it still is a place that I value to share information, share my story. And, you know, Justin Timberlake apparently made a song about me. The say the song Say Something was inspired by our spat on Twitter. Oh, and wow. I, um, that I found wow. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, as far as I go, I'm over it, you know, bless his heart. <laughs> but I am, you know, I, I still... Um, use that experience um, and several others, but as, as an example that 
Twitter is a democracy, it, it, the closest thing we get to a social media democracy than these other sites, because in that role, right, what he was trying to do was he was trying to sun me, but he also thought that because he had more social capital and influence right. than me, that was wrong. And collectively, Black Twitter and many others right. were like, no, actually, you're wrong here. And I like that there is a level of checks and balances where the most powerful, wealthy people do you know they don't matter they don't get to dictate the narrative as much right they don't get the they don't get to say whatever they want to say without the public being able to to say actually this is where we should go so yeah. i do enjoy that i mean there is arguments that twitter is uh, you know that the the viewpoints of twitter does not reflect the larger country i do agree with that as yes. i began to do some political coverage you know what people who people think are popping on Twitter, okay, Andrew Yang and right, <laughs> they don't really reflect the fact that Biden is still out here in lead. Right. But to say I'm endorsing anyone, let me be clear. But I'm just saying that as a political reporter, I have to sometimes remind people that Twitter is great to get nuanced views sometimes, but we shouldn't rely on what is popular on Twitter to dictate the rest of the world. You know, right. for example, yes. you know, the girls love Selena Gomez, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they love Nikki. But Nikki don't sell as much as she used to. But, you know, right. the get on there and they gas her up. I mean, Beyonce, for example, does not tweet at all. Barely. Right. Tweets and don't really get involved on Twitter. But she can get everyone and their mother talking about her on Twitter and all over. And she still runs you know the, the the music industry, so it's right. just a, a matter yeah. of having to recognize that Twitter does have its its perks, but it also has its 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 shortcomings, and people need to know how to assess their value on that as well. Because there's some people because yeah. they got something trending about. Mm, let me. That's another topic for another day. But yeah, you can have thousands of followers and be broke as a joke if mm. you don't how to capitalize. Right. That. You know, there's some people that really treat their Twitter following as their 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 assets. For me, listen, Twitter's a great tool, but listen, if Twitter stops working, ErnestOwens.com still exists. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heard that. Um, Ernest will still be found on various publications and media outlets. There's some people yeah. that put their entire worth, their life's worth, their value, their business, their thoughts, their ideas on that platform. And I, as a black entrepreneur, you know, I'm a CEO, I have my own company. I'm all about us using these things as tools, but not the end all be all. There are some people that really put all of their value in right. their, on these social media platforms. Look, I have people, I have a, I have a first person I went to college with who was hot on Vine, like, Oh, he loved Vine. Vine was his bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And then when Vine shut down, he was stuck. He had to now create a YouTube page. He had to do these other things. And I just right. think I want to just tell a lot of the young black people and also black folks that have gotten some Twitter violence, like, look, we got to remember that this is a trend. This is hot for now. But we got to still have those principles of knowing how to outreach and connect with people and, and tell our stories and, and, and have some ownership that does not follow within the gaze of social media. So, well, I'm happy you mentioned uh, social media as a tool because I get the distinct sense from you that it is one of many tools that you use for your overall sort of message. And that's, you know, I can't hate on social media or, or on Twitter because that's, I believe, how we could, you and I connected. I remember um, 
the whole Justin Timberlake, uh, sort of that whole moment. And we, I did not know you then. And I had no idea that that was you until you and I met in real life and started talking about it. But Twitter was how we found each other. And I meet uh, people in life. Yeah, right. I was gonna say we got coffee and that's how we met each other. But, um, but so sort of related to that, um, you know, I have to ask you about Trump. Um, and, and the way, you know, he has his own sort of Twitter presence. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to our, uh, listeners about, um, you know, how his presidency presidency is sort of changed the way reporting is conducted because of all of the access that he gives on social media. Um, if that's the case, um, and then we're sort of related to that, you know, does his just blatant open racism make it easier or more difficult to report on him or how has that changed the way that you report on someone who is so obviously openly against everything that you are and stand for you know he doesn't have black people or the lgbtq community in you know uh, he doesn't take their views or well-being into account hardly at all it seems um so i wonder if you could talk about that for a little bit well, there was this um, interview back in the 90s where, you know, then now Rock and Roll Hall of Fame honoree now, Whitney Houston, was asked about um, Mariah Carey. And the, the way it went was, what do I think of him? I don't think of him. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, um, and I think how I feel about Trump is I don't cover Trump that much. I, I mean, you can find a handful of op-ed pieces I've written about Trump. I don't really write about Trump. I don't really cover mm. Trump. I think that covering Trump is important. Let me be clear. But we have to... We have to the, what's so sad about this era is that we have over-covered Trump mm. to the point where people don't know what really matters and what doesn't matter. And it's it's like, why do we have to cover every single thing he says all the time. I think that things can be, I, I think that what we've done at this point is that there, there has been, and media is guilty of it, is that they've profited off of the buzz, right? People now have more New York Times subscriptions than they've had before. They More people watching, you know, these cable channels than they had before. There is a marketing, you know, we have seen, if anything, this is exposed to me, the profitability margin and model of media and how it can be oversaturated um, based on it. And so I always can count the days and celebrate the days when Trump is not in the news. Like that was a period of time before this whole Iran situation took place where we didn't hear much about Trump. And I really wanted to get on Twitter and say, isn't it a day that like Trump's not trending? No one's talking about him today. <laughs> right. Like cool right. Well, now he's being impeached and about to be tried. So that's those days you are know, over. <laughs> and then like, oh, my bad. You know, actually, I'm about to start this little World War Three situation freak incident with our Iran and get y'all talking about me again. But it was cute for a couple of days for him not to be the main story. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we did this over coverage, um, I think a lot of it is just that some people just don't, some of this is not important. And we have to be able to be tastemakers and, and, and just be really real about what's important and what's not. And we have to also have some discretion in being honest about what we're seeing. I'm so sick of. The, the the press doing this thing where you want to make Trump important, 
You want to talk about what Trump says, but nobody wants to just call a thing a thing when he does do it, right? So it's like, okay, I want you to see this thing Trump said, but we're not gonna we're not gonna call it racist, mm. right? Yeah, right. Like, what's the point of dangling this in people's face? And I educate people like this. This has been a missed opportunity in journalism that we could really we we know the patterns, right? There's all these correlations between him and Stalin and Hitler and all these things. And yet we just won't just have the courage and the decency hmm. to inform readers and the public on why these things are wrong. We keep telling people the what, but we're not telling people why. We have hmm. not done enough work to explain why. And then what we do, which is cowardly, is we ask other people what do they think. And now we're hmm. giving it a platform to say, oh, well, I don't think this is like we're debating about facts now. Right. And we shouldn't think about facts. Like, there shouldn't be a conversation like, well, do you think it's racist or do you not? Well, why is that a question? Yeah. Right. If we know the answer is. So mm-hmm. we delegitimized our own power as the press because we have the power to state facts. And now we've allowed for facts to now be up for debate and discussion. Now, everything's a debate. Was it wrong? Was it right? Was it racist? Was it a crime? Was it not a crime? I'm not upset. I'm, I mean, I'm clearly over Trump. Never had expectations of the man. Never thought highly of him. Didn't vote for him. <laughs> I never saw that come. N- never saw that. I, I'm over him. I'm more frustrated at people who I felt like should know better and do better. That's my biggest frustration. My biggest frustration in the Trump era has been the press, has been a lot of black folks in leadership positions that are still trying to play both sides when literally your side is getting its ass kicked. Um, people trying to see <laughs> a different angle, people who are trying to carve this damn turkey in 5,000 different ways when we could just cut it right in the middle. Like to me, it's, it's, that's been the most frustrating part has been the complicity, the, 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 the tolerance, the misplaced, um, nuance. Like we're trying to hold nuance for the alt-right. <laughs> like how right. many cool introspective stories can we do on white right. entitlement? Like how mm-hmm. many ways can we try to empathize and find empathy in, in, in messed up people and racist people and white supremacists, but yet we, we, we just can't find a nuance in black people, right? We, 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 everything is simply, oh, black folks are mad. We don't need to ask them why. That's it. Mm. Black people are mad. We know black folks are mad. Gays are mad. Okay. But white people, let's get into their head. Let's right. figure out so what, true. What, there when we could just simply say, you know what? It's simple. They're racist. They're mad. They're not in control. They're scared. They're losing power. They're more easy to read than I think black people. I think unpacking how mm-hmm. black people are trying to navigate themselves. That's more compelling to me. And yet we're dismissing mm-hmm. black and brown people's frustration, like figuring out how does it feel to be in a country where you, your ancestry has made this country and built this country, your labor is being exploited, and you're expected to save a country that will not save you. That's more complicated than right. a white person who's been raping, stealing, exploiting people all their lives and continue to do that, sh- that stuff today. Like That, to me, seems to be basic, yet the angle is trying to figure out white women's betrayal. No, white right. women people. Like, that is not new. To me, it's uh, interview the black woman who
who consistently keeps getting collectively politically ignored. Why are they still giving a damn about this country in spite of the fact that this country is not giving a damn about them? That's an interesting story. Ernest, you're getting me hyped, man. I know, right? <laughs> but that's but that's the that yeah. You're so that true, so true. We don't talk about, and so I'm in newsrooms where I hear people pitch these stories and 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 things, and then you know what's crazy is that they always assume, oh, you know, bl- you know, black people, you know, we're just mad, and I get it, they're mad because Obama's on office. Okay, the end. They're mad because Trump is saying racist things. Okay. But there's so much more, I think, nuance and complexity in our these these experiences. Even even within black people who are Trump supporters, you know, you know, I I I I have a little bit more patience. Not much, because I've lost it for Kanye at this point. But <laughs> It's the million dollar question no one's really asking about the Candace Owens, which, by the way, is not related to me at all. (laughs) Good good disclaimer. (laughs) Is, and this is what I've been saying, and I'm so happy I get a a chance to be on a podcast and say something like this out loud, but all these conversations about Candace Owens has been, oh, she's crazy, she did, she's that. But the question becomes, if Candace Owens was a Democrat, a liberal, a progressive, would she have been given the same platform and opportunity to speak truth to power in, on our side than she is on the conservative side? Mm, as a black woman. The matter is, is we don't have, the Democratic Party has not put up, or even just liberals and progressives, has not put up a black Candace Owens, a, 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 a Candace Owens, a black woman like a Candace Owens into the conversation. And let me be clear about that. Not Angela Rye, who is older with law degrees up and down and, and degrees and, 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 you know, that's been around. I'm right. talking right. a young black woman that can that, that like a Tommy Loren, a white woman like young that gets mm-hmm. a giving young black women a platform like that on cable television or even in our movement. It's either April Ryan's who I love April Ryan, but there have to be older, right? Right. 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 Directly connected, like Simone Simmons, like they have to be connected to a candidate. But right. are the young thinkers, like I look at people like myself, I don't see myself on TV as much. I've gotten mm-hmm. some airtime, but I don't get the platform as these young white boys who are mm-hmm. speaking about the values. Right, a young a young black guy like me don't get it. Right, they keep putting Eric Michael Dyson, Mark Lamont Hill, and a lot of these soon to be old heads in the in the. <laughs> about black people like how many times is reverend al sharpton going to speak on behalf of the black community or have a conversation where are your Mm -hmm. young people in this conversation and what Mm -hmm. i will say about conservatives whether they are doing it bad or good they have found a way to emphasize young people to be public and speak about their values Mm -hmm. and i'm not at all endorsing what they're saying i'm just saying that why haven't we done that in our own side why haven't Mm -hmm. progressed taking a, a rule out the playbook to embrace young black people. We don't have to all have PhDs and have entire, you know, write 3,000 books to get the opportunity to speak truth to power. Where are they? Why are they not seeing in? And, and why can't we have them not working for elected officials? Because that, to me, is annoying, right? The surrogates, right? The only time a black person can talk about politics on TV, we don't even put enough black journalists on TV, Right. 
is if they're a surrogate for a candidate. So they have to right. edit and given talking points. Why won't they just let free thinkers because there are such things as black progressive free thinkers like myself and like other young black men out here and black women right. out here to give those opportunities. I think that needs to happen. Um, mm. What we're not saying, like in other words, Candace is wrong for all intents and purposes, but I, 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 I get why a person like a Rob, a Rob and a, a Rob Smith and a Candace Owens is doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because they're getting, yeah. they're getting opportunity to showcase their ideas and be seen in ways in that they were seen in the party. Yeah. So, and then also, too, the foolishness of the fact that you put Candace Owens at these summits. Like the Revolt Summit was a hot-ass mess. She's R-E-I <laughs> and Killer Mike. Well, men, they're old enough to probably be her father. You know, right. in certain situations. Why are we not matching her up with someone on the other side that's her age and her build? Mm-hmm. Why are we putting her against black men? Why are we using, you know, why are we not keeping the energy even and, and matching people with the people? Rather than putting her on a on a in a in a, in a space with, you know, a bunch of men, older men argue with her, which only makes it look like a bunch of bullies at the end, but also makes it look dumb, right? Like like right, it's right. Big, I saw a scene, I think they had a side-by-side or something on one of these shows where it was Candace Owens and she was arguing with a bunch of men that were on up to be her dad. Like, why is she not given an opportunity to have a debate with a, a, a young, progressive black woman who's around her age? Like, to wow. me, a failure on our part. Like, we should be uplifting more young people to be able to get platforms. Like, I should be arguing with Paris Denard. I, I, Paris <laughs> Denard, I'd be arguing with our let me see him. Put me with yeah. him. <laughs> like, I just, you know, and I just think it's just, it's gotten a little embarrassing, you know, to watch. Mm. So. Wow. So we will sort of ra- start to wrap it up here with our final uh, question that we asked um, everyone who joined us on the pod. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that most of our listeners are, uh, racial allies or anti-racist, whatever term you want to use. Um, so we like to leave them with um, actions that can take place. Uh, so from your perspective, uh, with respect to race, what should racial allies uh, be paying attention to with regard to the news in their communities? And so you got Philadelphia specifically, if you'd like. And, and what are the areas uh, of concern for racial equity moving forward? What actions can people, white people specifically, who are racial allies, what actions can they take? Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny because if you would ask me as we go, I would have had a different reaction. But I think I, I have to, you know, have some ideas. Some, Well, first of all, the overarching theme of my advice is always going to be it's not about you. Mm-hmm. I tell to them. I just, I cannot emphasize that more than it's not about you. And that's in how I have seen white people um, feel like they have to perform and showcase all the things they do for people of color in their own way. That they feel like they have to, you know, declare they're not a racist by their actions and showcasing it. I'm not for, I think, in this decade, this desire to force people to have to perform and broadcast what they do. I'm okay with just shutting up 
and doing the work and serving and contributing without feeling like there has to be this disclaimer. We've learned this with the safety pin nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. Where safety pin, the symbolism has to stop. So I think that's my first thing is just to get to a place of decenter, decentralizing yourself in mm. the work. Um, and, and there's a lot of people that don't do that. I think what has been frustrating about the Bernie supporters is how much they want to wag Bernie's accomplishments to black people to get quote unquote black people in line of support. We got to stop that. I'm seeing a lot of these candidates do that and across the aisle. And I just feel like we got to get past this point of having to use what I call these, these liberal dog whistles to try to appeal to us. Like we do the work, you know, research will show it. Black people, black people will find out. We, we, we read too. We read, we read often. We'll know who's for us and what they do. We don't need white people to mm-hmm. feel the need to insert or inject themselves and, and tell mm-hmm. us what's for us. So it, it's got to be less about them and more about about us. And that goes for even black people. Like if you feel like you have to be mm-hmm. in a situation where you have to seek allyship, quote unquote, from white people, which means that you have to reduce yourself to appease their support, we're doing mm-hmm. it all wrong. We're doing it wrong. And I've had to tell people that, like, it should never be a situation where we feel like we have to um, compromise our 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 work, our, our ideas, our voice to appease white people for support. Because at that point, we're we're practicing white supremacy. We're, we're allowing the, we're doing the complete we're being counterproductive to the work that we were, we're trying to achieve. Another thing that I will also add on to that is that there has been a culture of white people not doing their own research. Mm. Do your own research. And and this is important on social media because I just had an issue with a guy um, who, you know, I guess means well. I guess meant well. <laughs> but I op-ed about how black people should take time off for MLK Day. Uh, we shouldn't be working on MLK Day. This whole MLK Day of service, this whitewashing, this, this ahistorical narrative around mm-hmm. MLK's legacy being uplifted by us working on days where our time off, even though we know he was a radical for labor and for right. and for, for, and for for working conditions. Right. I say this guy gets in and says, well, well, what what companies, what, like I talked to, and you all know this, you guys worked around, like there is this new, this policy where um, a company doesn't, a company says you could get off on MLK day with the expectation or emphasis on you doing community service. Right. Yeah. So y'all have heard that before, right? I'm not right. crazy. Right. right. So, you know, Cause I was feeling gaslit the other day. So I say this, that there are companies, you know, that I know near and dear that do this. And I'm like, so we don't get off unless we're doing service. So that's messed up. And I was talking about how that, that, that narrative needs to change. Mm-hmm. He says, well, can you name some companies? I saw in your article that you didn't name any particular companies that do this. I was wondering if there was any data. Uh, oh, on- man. The data man. And so the new thing that white people do is that they want to get statistics and facts as if, you know, and I want right. to say, you know, I was looking at him like, well, you know, you could use Google. I kept trying to say that. Right. He just was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, act like he wanted to understand data. There, there is a, there is a problem with that. And and I didn't understand. So a day later where, okay, so you want this, this, this quest for quote unquote accuracy, and what does that imply when white people ask black people for data on their lived experiences or observations they make? Mm-hmm. There are people that are quote unquote allies that suggest and, suggest and make this idea that, oh, I'm just trying to get this information so I can use it for this. Listen, 
believe black people when they tell you about their experiences and stop asking us to provide data and quotes. You do that work if you care that much to do it. But honestly, a black person is telling you that this is something that happened in the neighborhood. Stop asking for articles. Stop asking for books. Stop asking for statistics or data because what you're doing is you're asking, you're telling me in more ways than one, I don't believe you alone. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Some information and nine out of 10 is a secondhand source from a white person to back up your claim. Mm. Wow. And so it was interesting because a lot of black people got in the comments like saying, yeah, I have a job that I worked at that done this. And there was, and, and, and people were just like, why does this even need to be quote unquote validated with a, with a, with a source or a quote? Or Proven, like, yeah. Why do we do that? And a lot of people I feel like have done this on social media. This has been a trend I've been seeing yeah. where people have been asking for data all the time. And I'm not saying that these things are not important, but don't ask a black person who has shared something to then provide this mm-hmm. because that is ways condescending. And it also suggests that you don't believe them. And you have to start asking yourself a question of why do you need data when it comes to the experience of black people, why can't right, we just believe right. their experiences? Because that's part of the problem is not believing their experiences without this type of information. Mm. And we are experts in our own experience. You know, Absolutely. like that's what people don't get. Like some expert, some Harvard expert on some random subject, if they came on and on the news or we're talking to someone and asked them, and, and you know, I made some point, the, the response wouldn't be, oh, well, show me, show me the data, show me how you prove. No, you take it because they're an expert. And of course, what they're saying is true. So that's how I view it. Like we are experts. So don't, you know, yeah, you're right. It's so condescending and demeaning to, to demand. It's not even asking. They're demanding a lot of the time. Show me proof that this exists. Show me proof that, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening in your neighborhood. And it's like, yo, my eyes are open. That's the proof. Right. Like I see <laughs> There's an elitism that we need to also address um, in this. Yeah. Yep. Is that there seems to be this name, this need that when the New York Times mm-hmm. this, then all of a sudden it matters. Or when there's this Netflix documentary that talked about it, or this book that's on the New York Times bestseller that talks about it, that's when they then choose to mm-hmm. believe or have an interest. And if these white dominated spaces do not validate or vet these black ideas and thoughts for them, then they will not feel free to just roam into the wild and read black people or consume black intellect without these passes. And sometimes I feel like as black people, we have to be okay with not accommodating white people's ignorance, their privilege their insecurity around our experiences mm. sometimes i feel like we feel like we have to water down things or we have to make things more accommodating like mm. the venues yeah. we have events at like oh we have to we, ha- we have to meet them where they're at no how about they come meet us where we're at mm-hmm. we've been meeting them where they're at like i mean taking conversations about race out of college settings putting them into neighborhood churches or mosques or community spaces rec centers, places mm-hmm. that are always going to um, validate white people's comfort. I was talking the other day about these MLK symposiums and where they're happening at. And I'm just thinking it's interesting because we 
feel like we have to, that even in where we put our events or where we, and who we include on our panels, we are, we are, we are, we're coddling whiteness when we do those Mm -hmm. things and being comfortable with forcing them to come out and meet us where we're at. Because the only way that they will understand and learn, I think, is in that discomfort. And there, there's no discomfort in these conversations and spaces, even the environment itself. Then are we really making an impact? Are we really hitting what we really say we want? I mean, I have had to ask people, what do you want, essentially? You know, mm-hmm. everyone has these goals and these things, but it's like, you're doing these things, but what do you want to achieve? What is the goal? And And, and to me... I have had to stop assuming I knew that everybody in our community, people working in these spaces are coming at this with the same knowledge, desire, and interest. That some people just think that having white people present is a thumbs up. When I'm like, mm-hmm. that's nothing to me. That that doesn't hold any value if those people walk out and still do the same things they've been doing. Right. So it's about figuring out in our own organizing efforts, our community gatherings, what is the real intended purpose and being intentional about how we achieve that? Because, you know, what I've learned is that even as a journalist is that the more specific I am and the more concentrated I am, the more zero in I am on a purpose or an issue, the better I feel like I make a bigger impact. I think too many people are trying to go broad. And I think in 2020, we need to have a 2020 vision that zooms in on particular things happening. Before you try to change this country's perception of race, can you change your neighborhood block? Mm. You Before you combat white privilege, can you get the gentrifiers in your neighborhood together? Can you get those white hippies from calling the cops across the street every time a black person mm. walks by? Like, mm. Can we focus on what's happening in front of us before we think about what's happening outside of us? And so mm-hmm. I've done a lot of deep thinking and reflection on my own work and my own things. And I have really zoomed in. So, for example, I'm the vice president of print for the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. I was always talking about diversity, diversity and inclusion on a national scale. But it hit me that I live in Philadelphia and I don't see enough black journalists getting hired and getting opportunities to, to cover important stories. So I got more local and I volunteered at my local chapter um, and we're doing work to make sure that the people that we see every day and we network with are actually getting the opportunity to tell stories. So I'm over here trying to fight for swaths of black reporters to write at New York Times and these other places. But in reality, I need to be thinking about the people in my own backyard. And so it's been an interesting experience transitioning from thinking hyper-local than thinking super national, super global. Like I enjoyed Twitter. I enjoyed talking on Twitter and interacting. But I have to tell a lot of these black influencers and and writers and people that, yeah, it's cool to get to the national headlines and go viral. I've had those experiences. But if you don't know what's going on in your neighborhood, in your community, you're, you're, you're not, you're not making as much of an impact as you could. And so I would encourage all influencers and people, even white people who are trying to address, stop thinking about making contributions to NAACP. Give your money to local issues happening right in your own backyard. Support these community activists and these community mobilizers. Make sure that they have the resources they need to address the racism that is right in front of you. 
That that's mm-hmm. also important because we always I gave to NAACP, I gave to the national this. Let's let's start being a little bit more local and more and more aware of what, what's happening in our own block. Let's right. start holding our own companies and jobs accountable for their racist practices rather than coming after Chick-fil-A all the time. I mean, we should right. do that too. But we need to be looking at our own companies, look at their policies, look at the stuff they're doing, right? Like I've had people look and say, look, you're not observing for Muslims, Muslim holidays, the same way you're doing Jewish holidays. You should let people get time off for that. Like, you know, let, you know, we, we have to look at policies, you know, gender bias policies on dress codes for women that are different for black, for, for men or, or conversations about dress codes around hair and grooming for black men and women compared to their white counterparts. Like you can be an advocate in, in, in checking your own spaces first and clearing them out before trying to just go super national. So those are some of my thoughts coming in. Um, well, you've certainly given me and, and our listeners a lot to think about and a lot to take with them. Um, me too. So, Ernest, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for speaking with us. This is awesome. Thank you so much for um, having me come on. And it's been a really great chat. So the action item for this week's episode is be aware of cultural appropriation white people be aware of it that's a big one yeah um and particularly for this episode at least be aware of the appropriation of black english Hmm. so words and phrases and saying sayings that are particular or unique to black american english be aware of them and your usage of them and how and why you feel the need to appropriate them or the desire to. That's big because there's a lot. Yeah. So are we policing people and saying you can't say these words? No, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's important for people to understand what you're doing when you do use these words and the effect that it has. So for black people, when we speak black English, we do so knowing that in America, in general, that language is not looked upon as equal to standard American English, Mm -hmm. white English. Mm -hmm. So we often use it when we're amongst each other, other black and brown people, and we're often called to not use it mm-hmm. in a professional settings or when we're around white people. And we're only ever allowed to use it in professional settings when it becomes mainstream, when it's become, when it already has been appropriated right. and co-opted. And so it, it, to that point, when white people do appropriate black English terms and sayings and phrases, then... Only then does it become okay for black and brown people to say it in professional settings. I had someone email me the other day in a professional setting that to say something was dope. Yeah, so Meaning if I would they, have said that? that they agreed with it. Right. You know? Had I, like in a work email? 
Yeah. That's wild. Okay, right. So, so they, it's but this is LA, mind you. Right. But it is acceptable. That's an acceptable thing for anyone to say now. Oh, something's oh, that's dope, man. Like right. it's like that's okay. Yeah. So like if a black or brown person said that in a professional email, it's highly likely that their boss or supervisor would say something or people would think a certain way about them. Um, and it definitely wouldn't be looked on as cute or um, silly or fun because it's not when black people do it. Right. That's what makes it cool when white people do it is that it's sort of cutesy and sort of too cute by half, you know? Right. So that is the action item for today. Be very, very, very aware when you are using or have the desire to use black English. Why do you want to? When do you want to? And how do you think it's coming off to your audience? And what is it about you that allows you to say that, but would get in the way of a black person saying it in a professional setting or in a, in a setting that is not very hyper-personal? Hint, it's your skin color. <laughs> right. Also, if you don't know what we're talking about and you need more examples, literally just Google commonly appropriated terms or That's phrases, black terms or phrases. Yeah. It'll be, there'll be, I'm sure there's lists and lists and lists. BuzzFeed has probably gone to town on right. this already. And if you've never heard the term black English, Google that as well. And maybe we'll talk about it in, uh, you know, more detail in a following episode. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.